0: Hey what's up podcast listeners, thank you so much for stopping back in to another episode of Hospitality TV. I am your host Raphael Peterson, current wine director at Born and Raised at the Steakhouse in San Diego, California. If it's your first time tuning in, I just wanted to give you a quick intro as to what this podcast is all about. So I'm in the process of interviewing as many people as I can in the hospitality industry that have valuable insights and great experiences that can be passed on to other people in our industry so that we can all be better at what we do. Um, So this is literally a podcast made for people in the hospitality industry, whether it be sommeliers, waiters, bartenders, chefs, bar owners, etc. I'm trying to reach out to as many of these people as possible. So I could really appreciate your help if you could leave a comment or a rating on any of these episodes. Um, it would really mean a lot. It's great to get some type of feedback to know in which direction we're heading. Um, by all means, please subscribe to the podcast. And if any of this is bringing you any value whatsoever, it would mean the world if you could share this on your social media outlets or recommend it to any friends um, of yours in our industry. Um, and of course, if you have any recommendations on people that we should be reaching out to, by all means, share them directly to me um, so we can interview them and get them on the show. So for today's episode, we have Amanda McCrossin, also known as at Sam Vivant on Instagram and on YouTube. She is the current wine director at Press in Napa Valley, It's an amazing restaurant with one of the, or I believe the largest selection of Old Napa Cab currently in the world at the restaurant. So they've got an amazing wine program. They're dealing with amazing wines on a daily basis. We went over a bunch of things around how to do service properly in a restaurant setting like that, how to purchase Old Napa Cab, what things to look for. I mean, just a lot of really different things. Um, And just a quick note on Amanda as well. There's a lot of people right now online and on social media that are coming across as influencers or people who have some things to say. And from all the people that I follow, I've been really excited to get this interview done because she is, in my opinion, really delivering the most valuable content online for people to see, whether it be on her Instagram channel, at Saint Vivant, or on her YouTube channel, You get to follow her as she goes into different wineries in Napa Valley. She gives all her input um, and all her takeaways from these really epic wineries uh, that if you're in the industry, you can only hope to go visit one day. Um, But she's providing a ton of really, really useful, valuable information for people in our industry, really solid content that, I was just really happy to interview her. So we did this a couple months ago. Uh, Sorry for the late edit. Uh, We did it up in Groth Cellars in Napa. Um so I hope you like the podcast. We um we're going to jump right into it. I hope you guys enjoy. Let me know. So then you what brought you to Napa? Why why the change?
1: Oh, well, this is I mean <laughs> the <laughs> terrible weather. Silly question, the right? Line. Yeah. <laughs> um no, I mean honestly, I was working as uh, as the wine director and sommelier at a restaurant called Virtuoso Georgette on 60th Street in okay. Manhattan. And it was a it was a really lovely list, but it was also a very small list. I worked solo. I didn't have a team of sommeliers. Um, I also wasn't really working underneath a mentor. And it's really important in the wine world to work with people that are better than you, Mm -hmm. um, that can teach you. And I really was eager to work with not only a bigger list, but more people. Um, And so I started exploring different options and through a very strange series of events. I got connected with Scott Brenner at Press Restaurant, who was the wine director at the time. Okay. Um, I had applied for the wine director position at Bouchon, okay. and a friend of mine had sort of oddly connected us. Um, and Scott said, don't, don't go to Bouchon, come work for me, I'm actually hiring. And Perfect. interestingly, Press you know Press really never advertised when they were hiring sommeliers. So it was really serendipitous the way it all worked out. So I started, uh, I, I called him and we got on the phone Two weeks later, I flew out here and stalled for about two nights. Flew back home that night, I gave my notice. And three weeks after that, I was living here Amazing. in Napa Valley and oh working my God at
0: Press. Was Kelly White the wine director, too, at the time? Yes, or? so
1: they were co-wine directors. Got they it, okay. started... Uh, they Both of them opened it, right? They did. They founded okay. the wine program. The restaurant had been open prior to that. So yeah. the restaurant had been open, um, I think, for about three or four years. And Leslie Rudd at the time, uh, who was our owner, he since passed, he decided that he really wanted to make a commitment to the wine program. Yeah. And there really was nothing like the Press Wine Program at the, at the time, and I, I don't believe there is now either. Um, and so he hired Scott and Kelly out of New York and said, you know, I want to develop this wine program that's really sort of um, c- comparable to the great wine lists of Bordeaux and Burgundy mm-hmm. and uh, well-versed in their respective regions. So that was how the, the wine list at Press was developed.
0: So tell us a little bit about, um, I mean, you just kind of did, but you know, if you wouldn't mind, like just how it was, how the wine list is kind of composed, what the focus is. Sure. Um, and, and then tell us about like what it was like landing into that program and adjusting <laughs> to everything. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so the wine list uh, officially, unofficially is the largest, deepest restaurant collection of Napa Valley wines in the world. Amazing. So vintage is going back to the 1960s. It used to, used to be the 1950s. We're currently out of 1950s stuff. But the wine list is very unique. It is a comprehensive Napa Valley wine list. So everything you could ever possibly want from Groth, where we're at right now, to the really obscure, the hard to find, um, be it really small producer or back vintages, uh, Colt Cabernets, really unusual vintages of things. Um, it's a really special wine list. And it was interesting because, uh, and I'll... I'll I'll be very frank. I was not a huge fan of Napa Valley wines mm-hmm. because I was in New York. And right. in New York, um, and maybe some of you know this already, but New York, Napa Valley wines are not normally at arm's reach. They're not, they're not wines that uh, you see often on wine lists. Right. It's a very European-focused city. And so I didn't really know that much about Napa Valley wines. And what I did know, I, I was, I'll say taught not to like because I don't think I ever really gave it a fair shot. Yeah. Um, so when I came out here, it was, it was eye-opening, um, and one of the first great experiences I had was the second night that I stodged, I sat at the bar and had dinner at Press, and Kelly opened a 1987 Joseph Swan Zinfandel, and that was just completely left- life-changing because no I believed way. that Napa Valley wines were incapable of aging, and right. you, know, you, d- you didn't drink old vintages of Napa Valley wine. Right. That wasn't something that anybody did that right. I knew about. Um, and so that was that was an eye opening moment and then when I got here it was really a crash course in this region. And not only a crash course in this region, but a crash course in how to relearn about wine. And this living in this region, working with this particular wine list really teaches you that you don't know that much until you are are you're in the region working with the wineries, talking to the winemakers and really getting to dig for yourself. Yeah. So it was it was overwhelming but this is also a pretty magical place to to try to do it in
0: yeah i bet so what was the team like that you joined i mean were they you know like i'm sure everybody has like their their little areas of specialty right That, that when you're part of a team Um, were they kind of like just operating at a different level than where you were at in New York or not really? Like what was the comparison between that and where you were coming from?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I I was lucky that Arnaud had been trained in three Michelin-starred service. And so that was sort of my foundation. Mm -hmm. And even though I was working at sort of a, I wouldn't call it a bistro, it was like a, you know, one step above a bistro, but not quite at three Michelin-starred hospitality. Yeah. Um, I did have that sort of, that desire to work in an environment that was like that. But I also... I really enjoy being myself on the floor, mm-hmm. and sometimes restaurants like that don't really allow you to have so much personality, not right. all of them across the board, of course, but um, I really wanted to work with a program that had great foundational elements, steps of service that adhered to the guidelines that we we believe in the Somali world are, are the ones that you should be following. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Scott and Kelly both were, I mean, two of the greatest Somalis on the planet, as far as I'm concerned, and I think many would agree. Um, Kelly, of course, worked at Veritas. Scott was the wine director at Aureole for a number of years. He opened Clow in the Time Warner Center. So really, really deep knowledge um, from both of them with every major region in the world. So it was not only getting to work with two sommeliers who were deeply versed already in Napa Valley wines. And by the way, Kelly White's book was about to come out about three months after I arrived, is which is a it's monster in a of book. Oh my God. Um, and I, I can't even believe it didn't exist before she wrote it, because it is such a comprehensive guide. Right. And um, so getting to work with not only two sommeliers that knew so much about this region, but also two sommeliers who knew so much about the world of wine in general, and had worked at these great restaurants with these incredible, deep wine lists, and who had also worked uh, two, three Michelin-starred service. It was kind of a dream come true. But I yeah. also had another cohort uh, named Nico, who uh, is from Bogota, Colombia, and he had been here for, I think, a few years. He'd gone to the C.I.A. Wine program. So, so we were kind of the newbies, but he had been here like eight months before me. So I did have sort of a, a cohort to kind of feel like a newbie with.
0: <laughs> That's important. It is important. <laughs> you need that. You guys can rise together, for right? For sure, yeah. And then go through all the pain together too. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of that involved. Yeah. Um, what's, what would you say is the biggest impact that Kelly made on you?
1: Oh, um, I think open-mindedness. I think she she made it okay for me to have an opinion and made it okay for me to just kind of like... I mean, she was the first person that when I arrived here said, you know, this place as magical and wonderful it is, as it is is also not New York. So there's not a million things to do every hour of the day, right. every day of the week. And so she was really encouraging early on in uh, making sure that I had sort of, not necessarily a side hustle, but like projects on the side that I was working towards. And so she would... Often put me up for um, seminars and workshops, and um, you know would recommend me for like little writing pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was she was incredibly influential. But I think you know mostly just never uh, never settling and just you know making sure that you uh, <laughs> certainly before you say something, you better have researched it because right. someone will call you out on call it. Someone call you <laughs> for sure. sure. Yep. <laughs>
0: Well, do you want to taste some wine? I mean, we have a beautiful bottle. I mean, we're here. We're we here. We taste might as well. I mean, we've, been running, we've both been running around all day. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's, let's, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. they've been uh, kind enough to give us a bottle of the 2015 Groth Reserve. Yeah. Um, what's, here, chairs. let in there. Yeah. I don't want to wait it's been any a longer. It has been a long day. What's interesting about this wine um, is that it is actually the 30 year anniversary of the 1985 Reserve. Mm-hmm. That received hundred points.
1: First, the first one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. I was looking it up last night. I feel like you know they went back and revised it or something, but like it was the first one to get the hundred points. Um, In Napa and, Valley. Yes, yes. Yes. Correct. Yes. Um, and so I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what your thoughts are on scores. You know, do people come into the restaurant all the time asking about scores? What your take is on scores? You know, and how that's changing, right? Because that's somebody's basically opinion, no matter how prestigious it is. Yeah. And there's a lot of people with big following, such as yourself, who are giving their very well-educated opinion also, that's different from a score. Um, What are your thoughts on scores?
1: Well, I think scores are one of the reasons I have a job. I think scores were what allowed United States States specifically to sort of have something to latch onto that made sense to them. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, for a long time, wine, and I was not obviously around in this era, but my understanding is, that wine really wasn't as commonplace as it is now. Mm-hmm. And scores were something that people could look at in a book and assign a number to and say, you know, I, I, this guy says that this wine is 98 points, and I really like what he has to say. And I think there's a lot of value and a lot of merit in scores. But I do think that they have become this thing that we've all sort of allowed ourselves to just focus on maybe too much, mm-hmm. and it's become too much of the, the zeitgeist right. of what we do here. I think scores are going to become less relevant. I don't think they'll become irrelevant, but I do think there is starting to become more... I do, I do think that there are go, there's going to be a time, and I think it's coming soon,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where you're going to see more writers and more influencers and bloggers have more of an impact yes. in a real way. That is maybe equal to or even greater than scores. I don't think scores are ever going to go away, but I do think that it's not going to be as easy for wineries to just sort of allow scores to be the driving force behind their marketing. Um, I do think it's going to take a little bit more work, and scores are going to be not going to become uh, a staple in our in our industry.
0: Yep, I agree amanda let me ask you about a specific scenario for example Mm. i'm super curious to see how you approach this so i'd love to get your feedback on how you would describe um the napa valley and maybe the different appellations on your wine list to a guest who's asking about it right because Mm -hmm. if i like the way i look at it for example at our at born and raised we have a very we have an international list we do we also have a napa focus but our list is small it's relatively humble um we try to have a good representation of all international grapes so I'm in a, maybe the way I look at it, almost an easier position to where I'm like, cool, I have the list broken down in two big sections, new world and old world. Yeah. It's a great starting point. Do you prefer, you know, and I go into kind of gross generalizations, but you know, it's easier to like, do you like the somewhat possibly more fruit driven style or a Mm -hmm. little bit drier and more mineral driven and right away I can create a fork in the road to take them down a different path. Um, But you're such in a such focused area, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you approach that when somebody asks you and let's. Also, make believe that you don't have six tables that are waiting for you, and a food <laughs> runner over here, and the chef wants to speak to you. Right. You're actually in a place where you have, you know, five to ten minutes to talk to the guests. And how do you approach it?
1: Yeah, I mean, the creative constraint, as I call it, is is that we are 100% Napa Valley, mm-hmm. so it does put us in a situation where we do have to pull wines for every palate, whether they prefer New World or Old World, off of a New World list. And so we can definitely break that down by appellation. But mm-hmm. I find um, even more than Appalachian style vintage um, and uh just overall, like texture of the wine mm-hmm. is something that I take into account, and price, of course, right. um, take into account more than anything else. And so we sort of break it down in the same way that you do. You know, do you prefer something that feels a little bit more ripe? Do you like more of those herbaceous tendencies? And then talk to me about texture. Do you love something that is going to really kind of like dry your mouth out? That's um, going to leave you with a little bit of a a, a rougher finish? Or do mm-hmm. you really like it viscous and round and soft and lush? Um, so we, you know, we take the temperature of tables in yeah. many different ways, and sometimes that conversation starts with price, sometimes it starts with style. A lot of times what we do is, because we are in the Napa Valley, is we start with, where have you been tasting and what have you enjoyed? So that's generally the first question that I ask a table is is as I try to gauge you know where they've been and what they've been enjoying what what wines they've enjoyed in the past. Um, I find that a lot of guests don't really know what their stylistic preference is. I mm. find that that's a really tough and tough question for a guest to answer. Absolutely. Um, and so sort of by by allowing them to to tell me specifically what wines they enjoy, I can sort of discern what it is they actually are after. Right. Um, and the other you know the other thing is like guests you know, we, I say this lovingly, but guests lie. And that's okay because I, and I don't think they mean to, and I don't think it's malicious. I just think that they maybe have been given the, a different vernacular than we have. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we're not on the same page with what tannin is, what dry is, what, um, you know, what round and viscous is, what full bodied is, what light bodied is. I think a lot of times, um, and probably one of the biggest ones is Bordeaux in style, Burgundian in style, things like that. Totally. Um, And so, you know, I I try to remove those words as much as I possibly can. We try never to use the word tannin. We try never to use the word acid. Of course, it slips into conversation. Um,
0: So, what do you use to describe the ones? Because you mentioned texture for a while. Like, what are some of the?
1: Yeah, I think you know, we always we try to um, describe it as like a, a rough or smooth. We try to talk about. Um, you know the ref would um, be
0: kind of more drying tannins. Yeah, so a little like, more round and viscous. Yeah, and lush like and,
1: roundness, and, softness, mm-hmm. um, lushness. You know, do you prefer that, or do you like it to feel like your mouth is having is a little bit more puckered? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are those are just little things. And sometimes guests come to us and they know exactly what they're talking about, and or I guess as it relates to what you know how what we know, right? Um, But yeah, I mean, more than anything, we just try to eliminate that altogether and just allow them to talk about the specific wines that they've enjoyed. Um, And then, you know, we also have the conversation about vintage. You know, a lot of times guests really want to dive into something older and maybe they're ready for it, maybe they're not. Um, And so we have to have conversations about you know, what an older wine does taste like. And so a lot of times we have to talk about other beverages that they might know, like tea or um, coffee or coffee with milk or um, just milk by itself. Um, So that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things you can use that are commonplace in everyone, in people's lives that you can relate back to wine that isn't necessarily wine specific.
0: Right. Let me ask you something a little specific about service too. Like if you're, when you approach olding, uh, excuse me, approach opening older bottles of Napa Cab, when do you, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the service of that and like when do you, if, do you decant older bottles, are there certain, you know, there's some producers that we know like Diamond Creek, like you need to decant that, even if it's 20 years, like it's a beast, you know it's going to be rich, it needs time to open. Other wines that I've found that like, hmm, that was ready to drink like, yeah. right away, it didn't need to open um, and it changes a lot from vintage to vintage, right? Sure, and yeah. I mean, you're so you have, you do that every night, like do you, are there certain guidelines that you have, is it specific to vintage and producer? Like. You know, like how yeah. do you approach
1: that? No, I mean, you're so spot on, especially with the Diamond Creek reference. And I mean, that is, I God, I wish there were like a clear cut set yeah, of guidelines, like we do this every single time, mm-hmm. we don't do it, if blah, blah, blah. But there's not, I mean, ultimately, and that was one of the things that I learned when I started and one of the things that I'm teaching the three new two of which started five months ago, one of which started a month ago. Um, those are things that I'm teaching them and I am very conservative when it comes to decanting Diamond Creek would be the one exception because I've been burned so many times by not decanting and right. then like tasting the dregs an hour later and I'm like oh god that's where that wine was I was right. waiting for it to come out and it felt like it was I was like oh maybe the wine's just a little bit empty maybe it's you know just not that great and then an hour later I'm like this wine is brilliant totally it just life, needed yeah. air yeah um, and so it is really a case-by-case basis. There is nothing vintage-specific about it. Sometimes it's producer-specific, um, but it is, it is trial and error. And as you, you know, I always, I always think a good piece of advice is if you're unsure of whether or not you want to decant, whether you're in a restaurant or you're at home, and I will caveat this with, we taste every single bottle we open. Um, before we even serve it to the guests. One, to ensure that it's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, to ascertain whether or not we think it should be decanted. Right. Um, but I, I always think a really good way to decide whether or not to decant is pour a few ounces in glass, like maybe two, no more than three ounces, give it a good swirl, let it sit in the glass, walk away from it and come back three to five minutes later and mm-hmm. see what it does. Right. Sometimes, you know, especially California wines, sometimes those wines will like tighten up in glass and as they get air, you'll see just gently what it's gonna be doing. Um, If it starts to fall apart in glass, don't decant it. If it starts to firm up and it feels like it's all the fruit's coming back, all the structure's coming back, that's probably a good sign that you should decant it. I I never like to use massive decanters. If I'm going to decant, it's generally like a tight Zalto, mm-hmm. um, unless it's a Magnum and that's a double. Right. So we we do not use. I mean, categorically across the board. Really, I just, even for
0: like young wines, for example. No, we
1: don't use big um big like saucer decanters or anything yeah. with like massive amounts of air. We only have one of them, and that's yeah. we only use it in very rare instances. Um, Napa Valley wines, I think, especially young ones, people always want to decant it very, very heavily when they're young, and I don't always think that's the right way to go. Um, they always think that, you know, putting it in a decanter is going to soften the tannins. That's not necessarily true. A lot of times, what happens is more of those like alcohol smells. Um, those like ethers sort of come to the surface and they poke out and the wine mm. sort of gets disjointed. And decanting can really push a wine in a direction it doesn't necessarily want to go too early, especially when it's young.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: and so I and that's why I'm generally pretty conservative. And that was something that Scott really taught me and he was sort of like me, very gentle about decanting. Um, you know, never give a wine too much air. And especially when you're at a restaurant, you can always go back and decant, right? Like you can always check back with your table and you should be checking back with your tables. If you feel if you're on the edge, you're not really sure whether you should be decanting, maybe give it a gentle decant maybe don't but pour half glasses see what it does in the glass check back see what's going on and then you can decant after and that's a really nice step of service Mm, and a way to touch the table that makes it see and people are paying a premium so like give them what they what they're paying for and you're Um, obviously
0: looking out for their best intentions for sure yeah
1: Yeah, you don't you never want to make a mistake when it comes to decanting i I mean you're going to inevitably but um i find that you know being conservative is always the best way to go in any situation yeah
0: that's amazing advice. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you for that. <laughs> um, what do you think is the best piece of advice that you've received as a sommelier?
1: Ooh, um, Lose the ego.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I just, just like you walk in a building and like just drop it. Don't even think about it. Um, obviously, when I was a younger sommelier, everyone just wants to like, impart all of this brand new knowledge that you have Mm onto your guests, you want to correct your guests, you want to share all of this information that you think is so fascinating and that's just 100% not the way to go. I don't know if I ever actually received that advice like directly or if that was something I picked up, but it was something that's like now just shared practice and something that I advise all my summaries. You have no ego on the floor. Um, If you even feel like it's coming out, like walk off the floor, come back, and leave it where you were.
0: I love it. Yeah. Who told you that?
1: <laughs> um that's actually a piece of advice that I uh I learned in my my ballet and my um oh. my stage days. Um I, I actually had a, a ballet instructor who would leave a physical trash can outside the rehearsal space and he would say <laughs> I mean we were like ten at the time, but he would say, <laughs> um he'd say leave your shit in this basket and pick it up on the way back out. Oh like God. I don't want it in the room. And
0: like not referring to anything physical, like strictly, no mental like your mental baggage. Yeah. Like I just drop that. it
1: there, pick it up on the way oh my out. God. That's an amazing um, way you start. <laughs> Yeah, like a ten years old. That's pretty extreme. Yeah, that's that
0: is extreme. <laughs> but it's effective, like and it, it. it
1: does kind of work. And I, I always worked in a no BS environment. I yeah. always worked with adults. I always worked with professionals. Um, even when I wasn't in hospitality, but I do think those things are sort of linked, and there's a lot of parallels.
0: Absolutely. And
1: uh, it's something that I've, I feel very strongly in, yeah. and uh, seems to be working today. I don't know.
0: That's great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, so I'm gonna ask you one more question about the wine program that I wanna talk to you about your kind of your social yeah. media because you got a lot going on there. Okay. But um what do you do, or what do you look for when you're trying to source older vintage Napa Cab, right? Because it can be a very tricky process to do this, right? Provenance is huge. I mean, yes. what are some of the things that, um, that you're learning to do that I'm sure you've learned from the original, you know, the creators of the wine program? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you guys come across these wines and what do you look for?
1: Yeah, I, and, and truly, Scott and Kelly did teach me everything I know. Um, there were a few things that I maybe picked up, like, along the way, but the crux of what I have learned is from them. Um, so all credit to Scott and Kelly. That said, we are very, very lucky to um, and fortunate to have the program that we have and to have had the length of time with this program. Um, and I say that because we we have such strong relationships with these wineries around the Valley. Many of them um, are more inclined to open up their libraries to us because they know that the wines are, one, going to be taken care of, and two, um, it's a great way to market your wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's a... That's not, that's unfortunately not going to be the case for every restaurant around the country because of distribution laws and accessibility and there's just not enough wine. Um, But we've been very lucky to source directly from the winery and and Napa Valley wines are not wines that love to travel. They're not wines that um, love to be shipped back and forth a million times. I mean, no wine really wants that, but especially not Napa Valley. Um, Auction houses are great. We, you, I don't know if a lot of people know this but you if you are going to buy from an auction house and you are within driving distance drive down to the auction house and tell them you want to see the bottles go physically inspect them and I don't think a lot of people know that you can do that um, it does take a little bit of preparation on their part um, and it does require having a relationship with that auction house maybe in the first place um, but do go and inspect your bottles firsthand if you're gonna be buying from somewhere like WineBid bid um, or somewhere that you can't Give them a call if you feel like you know they're not giving you enough information about the wines that are on that site. Pick up the phone. There are people that there are physical humans that source those wines from sellers. Nine times out of ten, they're going to be more likely to give you that information uh, and be transparent about the provenance of that bottle. Um, find out you know how that bottle not only was stored but where that bottle came from in the first place. Was it purchased direct from winery? Was it purchased um, from a collector? And then how much was in the seller? In total, you know, if it's one bottle of um, one thousand, nine hundred and eighty-five Groth Reserve and nothing else, you know, that's that's not necessarily a good sign, right? right. That means maybe that bottle had been handed down, um, so maybe the quality isn't quite as good. Um, the the one thing you should always be looking for when you are inspecting bottles is color. Mm-hmm. That was something that Scott taught me. Um, so when you're checking the bottles, you know, obviously fill is really important. You never really want it underneath. Um, underneath the base Mm -hmm. Um, you know a little maybe like a few centimeters is fine especially if it's got massive amounts of age right but only in the case of like 40 to 50 years Okay. Um, the most important thing is color so what you're gonna do is you're gonna turn the bottle sort of on its side shine a flashlight underneath of it it should look very reflective and very red Mm. Uh, it shouldn't look brown or murky or hazy Um, it should certainly shouldn't look like um, like it's separating um, and it shouldn't look watery. So you wanna you want to make sure that it's very reflective. And even wines with 40, 50 years will still, that are in great quality, um, should have great color. And that is more telling than probably anything else, more than a cork, more than the fill, more than seepage, more than label condition, color has always been sort of the, the tried and true thing. It's not like anything 100%. Right. Um, but that I think is the thing that I pay most attention to when I'm sourcing older bottles of wine.
0: Interesting, wow, yeah. great points. Um, okay, I wanna take a, left turn here and ask you about your social media. I mean, you're, yeah. you're so active. Um, and you know, one of the things I love since I started following you, which has maybe been, I don't even know how I, how, I got, how I got turned down to you, but it was like six months ago maybe, you guys go to wineries like at least once a week. Yes. And you do an amazing job of showing the story of the winery. You know, you're, you, <laughs> I don't know how you do it because you type a lot of information on there. Um, <laughs> But it's like you're going, it's like we get to go on a field trip with you to these wineries. Oh, Thank good. you for that. Oh, I'm so, um, <laughs> it's that, amazing. Like, that
1: makes me really happy.
0: Um, because especially, I mean, we been t- I don't know, I've been talking to a lot of people lately about like people who are, who are, you know, posting online and active on social media. And honestly, I'm, I'm going to put this out there right now. If you're in the wine industry and you are at all in any facet in like the sales side or in the restaurant side, and you're looking to learn more about this region, you have to be following you because you're doing mm-hmm. bar none the, the best job of, Showing the region oh, that's so nice. and showing these wineries, um, which is amazing. And um, but so, let me ask you this: How did you like? Where did the idea come from to start the Somme Vivant channel?
1: Oh, um, well, it kind of it kind of goes back to my days in New York. Um, I very. <laughs> quietly, I guess, uh, started another YouTube channel that was called unwind with Amanda. Okay. That was very short lived. I think I produced like all of one or two videos. Okay. <laughs> and, um, that's like a perfect example of, I, I just tried to do too much and I tried to make it perfect. Mm-hmm. And it, it just like blew up on my face. Like it was just too, like it was too much, right? Like you never wanted, what's that old saying? Like, don't make it perfect. Just like get the content out there. i sharing that phrase but whatever it is so anyway so I, I started doing that um, back when I started getting into wine I realized that there wasn't there wasn't a resource that I personally enjoyed there wasn't a person that I felt like I had a strong connection to for a lot of critics a lot of writers um, you know people that I, I really admired, but no one that I viewed as sort of similar to me and someone that I like like I said, like a, a strong connection to And so I was like, you know, it would be really cool to like take this background that I have in film and TV and this newfound appreciation of wine and put them all together. And so I started it very gently in New York, but New York is very distracting, right? So like I'm doing a million things and I'm just totally unfocused. Um, and in the process of doing that, I was approached by this, uh, I, f- I forget what his title was, he was like creative producer of something and it was, it, and it was the wine show. So it ended up being the wine show, which um, aired in the UK and Amelia oh, no Amelia Singers on it and um, the two British guys whose names I'm forgetting. Um, but anyway, it was like a really big deal around like the second or third season. Um, so they, they approached me initially to be a host in that show and I was in, in talks in, in the early days to be one of three hosts and now it's a very different show. And then in the process of doing that, I got connected with this casting Asian for a reality TV show, I think. And I just wanted some advice. I'm like, you know, I, I don't even know what I was asking. But she said to me on the phone, she said, well, you know, truthfully, you don't bring a whole lot to the table. And she's like, she was just very blunt about it. And I was yeah. like, all right, I guess that's true. Um, and she said, you know, you're, you're young, you don't have a ton of experience in the wine industry. And like, you know, you don't have a ton of pro- the professional hosting experience. But she said, you know, the one thing that I do see as something that you can do is build your own audience and do that via social media. And this is like way before, like Twitter is like a big thing, Facebook Mm -hmm. is a big thing, but this is like sort of before like the Instagram days. And so I was like, all right, well, that sounds interesting. And it sort of, I didn't do anything with it at the time, but it did sort of stick with me. And so when I arrived to Napa Valley in this like big, beautiful new place, and we're doing all these things, we're going to wineries, I started just like snapping pictures. And I started snapping pictures of bottles that we were opening up press and telling some of the stories and the response was really big it took off pretty quickly um and i was like well this is really interesting and and then i was talking with guests on the floor and at the restaurant and people were asking me hey you know where should we go to visit and i was like i don't don't know and like i hadn't visited that many wineries even though i had been here for a few months and i said well you know i I should have the answer to this question this shouldn't be something that i can answer like very readily and have little pieces of advice for different people and I think the one thing that people don't know when they come to Napa Valley is even though you might you might love Groth, you might hate this winery experience, probably not. but you might hate this winery experience. Right. and I, so it, it became very apparent to me that people wanted to know where to go to visit when they came to Napa Valley and there was no good resource for that as far as like video content. there were a few blogs um, and then you have like your, your Chamber of Commerce websites. So I decided to um, get a rig similar to yours, and uh, I was reeling really to like Casey Neistat at the time, who was doing daily vlogging, and basically bought the exact same rig that he had. Like, like did the checklist, everything that Casey had was like I bought it, and I said I'm gonna I'm gonna go to a winery every single day, and I'm going to film in the morning. I'm gonna edit myself. So I edited before work, went oh to work, God. came home, finished editing the video, uploaded it, started the next day, and oh I did that for God. thirty days straight. Wow. That's crazy. That's insane. Seems nuts now. <laughs> it probably was, um, but that's that's really how I got started. And then from there, the channel sort of iterated multiple times. Mm-hmm. As you know, that's obviously not something you can do all the time, right. uh, especially with a full time job. No, there's no way. Um, but it was really how I got my start. And yeah. I just sort of listened to feedback. I listened um, for what people wanted more of as Instagram continued as a platform iterating. Um, I started adapting my content Instagram stories made life a lot easier for me because yeah. I got to just
0: no edits no edits you yep. just
1: throw it up there and there it is yep. um, and it great and yeah the are so good now
0: like you don't even need it yeah you started on YouTube primarily right like most of the <laughs> so videos that, were going there
1: yeah most of the video, like any video content was only going on YouTube yeah. and like Instagram didn't even have video until I don't know like two years ago right so um, so yeah there was no video content It was all it was all pictures and here we are
0: it's amazing I mean, keep it up, please. Thanks. What, so, what's your goal? <laughs> I mean, just to continue to do what you're doing now. Do you have like a, a bigger picture goal of anything, or I oh, mean, God, just I w- to continue what you're doing? <laughs> Not that yet. I mean, it's amazing. I would be very yeah, very oh. happy if you just continue to do yeah, that because yeah. we're learning so much right now as you're going.
1: Um, um, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball to like <laughs> let you know what it was gonna look in the future. I don't know. I mean, I think you know that little piece of advice, which is build your own audience, build your own brand, be able to take something with you, be able to bring something to the table. I think that is. <laughs> It's a, it's a stupid saying, but like, you know, they say your, your network is your net worth. Mm-hmm. Um, it is to a certain extent true. It is, it has been something that I've been able to leverage in my own life, both professionally and personally. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I will continue to do that. I also think it's an invaluable resource for me to keep a diary and then also to have constant communication with, what's going on in real time in the industry, both with the consumers and with the wine industry. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's a free platform. It costs me nothing really to do. Um, it costs me nothing to upload anything and uh, I will continue to do that. And I hope one of my favorite things to do is just be creative and create content. Yeah. So um, as long as I get to keep doing that, I will continue doing. Are you
0: still doing your own edits? I am. Oh my god. Yeah. Wow, good for you. Yeah, I <laughs> love it. I think great? I'm like
1: I'm the only like Shelf-cut? crazy. Yes. Yeah. Um, you. Yeah, you can learn anything on the internet currently. Sure yeah. So, yeah. I'm yeah. in that
0: painful process also of yeah. YouTubing everything on how to
1: yeah Uh, and I still I still YouTube like you know little things that I want to do yeah um, I love it I I find a lot of joy in editing video in fact it's weird it's like very
0: even though it takes a lot of time it's kind of it's very rewarding it is very rewarding did you like
1: puzzles as a kid
0: Uh, yeah yeah I think
1: to me it's like a little bit like a puzzle like like learning
0: stuff on my own yeah
1: yeah yeah, I do I love learning I love to learn things and I love to have like little skills in my back pocket so I think that's part of it too
0: Okay, I want to, I know we got to wrap up. You got to go to work. <laughs> We're getting things done I'm already here. at work. I got to ask you something. So I saw um, a clip. I don't even think I saw the video. I'm not sure if it was posted or not, but I saw a picture of you talking with Gary Vaynerchuk. Oh. And I got to ask, I'm so curious because this guy is like, I, I follow him. I followed him since the Wine Library TV days, wow. um, which I used to love that show because you used to be able to like, it was such a good search engine on that show. For sure. Where you could look up specific things like Barbera Dalba and, the episode of Barbera would pop up and he'd give you a little description like yeah. it was one of the most informative things um, on YouTube at that time but obviously comes such a long way um, he's part of the reason that got me motivated to start doing this whole thing yeah what was it like to meet him and what were some of the takeaways you got from meeting him
1: oh um, it was so interesting that I was supposed to I flew out to New York because he started this wine project called empathy with yes. uh, Nate and with, with John Trotman um, and so John actually reached out to me and said, "Hey, we want to create some content, um, not you know directly related to empathy, but just like content about rosé. Would you be interested?" And naturally, I'm flattered. I'm a huge fan, like you are. I think Gary is amazing. Um, he was a huge reason uh, one why I got started and two why I continued, because mm-hmm. um, he just continued to like just do better every single day. So he. He is monumental in in wine, and also he started, like you said, Wine Library TV. Yep. He paved the way.
0: Yep, totally. Um,
1: so, anyways, so I flew out there to film this content, and <laughs> the day that I got there, his schedule changed, and he had to fly to like Chicago or something last minute. So I didn't get to meet him the first time oh I thought hell. I was going to, and I was so nervous. I like, and I got, I went into like, <laughs> like uh, I, I went into VaynerMedia yeah. headquarters no in um, in Hudson Yards, yeah. and like, so I had my badge on. We're going to the escalator elevator, and I was like. I'm gonna meet Gary Vaynerchuk, he's gonna be great, like, Babin's here, at DRock's here, like, everybody's here, like, I have made it, I have arrived. Um, and then we get there, and I see, like, and I guess it was John, and John was like, hey, where's where's Gary? And they were like, oh, his schedule changed. And I sp- see his face go completely white, and he's like, what do you mean? Like, I just flew this girl out here from California to, like, film with him today, like, what's going on? Um, so we ended up, like, ha- we had a ton of different shoes today, so anyway, so I actually didn't get to meet him, until um well that's not entirely true i didn't get to film with him officially um until he came back out here in february and um i got some time with him then but he had come into the restaurant the first time i met them was about a year prior to that they had come into the restaurant on a whim um (laughs) this is actually this is a great hospitality lesson so I'm in the back, and our AGM at the time had taken a phone call from John, who was with the whole Vaynerchuk crew, yeah. and AGM comes to the office, he goes, oh, you know, these guys are coming in, I don't know who they are, but they wanted to film, and I said, no, and I was like, what do they want to film? And he said, oh, um, you know, it's this guy, Gary Vayner or something, and I was like, Gary Vaynerchuk? And he was like yeah but like i told him they couldn't do it and i was like oh no 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 no! this is not happening yeah. like you had no you have no idea who you just said no to you you just said categorically no and didn't didn't have any context for the situation so as soon as they arrived i pulled his two videographers aside and I said hey i know exactly who you guys are you're welcome to film as much as you want. And by the way, it was like a Sunday at 9 p.m. There was nobody in the restaurant. Right. So it was like, it wasn't like we were invading anyone's space. Right, right, I right. also know their rigs are about as big as yours. And they are like, they do this full time. Right. So that was They're the first pros. time that I met them. And I made sure to like, sort of make an impression, make sure that they knew who I was, like engage with them, had some conversations. And so Trouty and I sort of stayed, Trouty is his Instagram, mm-hmm. John's Instagram. Um, Trouty and I sort of stayed in touch over the next couple months. And that's sort of what segued, Our relationship into just meeting casually at the restaurant into a professional working relationship. Um, And getting back to your question, I promise I will answer it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I love it. Keep going. (laughs) Uh, But it's just like it's a it's a bigger it's a very big story. Um, He ended up coming back out in February, the following year, and we got to film in our cellar, which is really cool. cool. Um, One of my biggest takeaways from Gary is he. He's incredibly like this all the time, but when he sits down to do an interview, he's like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, "Wow, this guy is so focused. He isn't thinking about anything else but what's going on right now." But the second we were done, he was like, "Left turn," right. and you can see that his mind just like works in a very different way. Um, he was so kind and he was so gracious and um, modest and just like just a lovely, warm human being without being. Um, Without it being feeling fake, like right. it was it was very genuine. Um, and he is really grateful to be doing what he's doing. I think I think there's uh, there's a there's a true modestness to um, to his approach to not only business but life. Um, so that was that was sort of a takeaway in addition to just like, wow, this guy is doing a like I think I never consider myself busy like I just consider my like schedule very full um, like I'll never tell anyone I'm too busy I just I just you know we'll try to make time at another place and just rearrange schedule right. and, um, that's a great example of someone who just is really good at like managing their schedule and making sure that they're trying to do as much as they can but focus when they're doing each individual singular
0: task amazing yeah awesome Well, I know we got to wrap up. Amanda, thank you so much for taking the time here. Awesome. Um, Please tell everybody where they can find me on social.
1: Oh, yeah. You can find me at uh, which camera? This one right here. This one? Okay. Uh, You can find me at Somvivant, S-O-M-M-V-I-V-A-N-T, on YouTube and on Instagram. And you're always welcome to DM me. You're always welcome to message me. And I hope to see you all at Press Restaurant in Napa Valley, right in the heart of St. Helena. I will be on the floor working as a sommelier. And uh, please do say hi if you stop in.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And guys, don't forget, as always, follow us at hospitality TV. We're on Instagram and Facebook. Also live on the iTunes podcast and Spotify. would love to hear what your thoughts are on this interview. Please let us know.